Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to this episode of Stages. My guest today is Rodney Dobson. To any fan or performer of the musical theatre, Dobbo needs no introduction. He has graced our stages for over 30 years in a succession of musical fare, from new works to being a member of the original Australian casts of juggernauts that include Wicked, Chess, Sunset Boulevard, Aspects of Love and Miss Saigon. He is about to go into rehearsals for another the Global Creatures produced Moulin Rouge, which opens in Melbourne in August. It is always a treat to bump into Dobbo and more to sit down and reflect on his life in the theatre. Three, three years of this. Three years of this, um, heading towards episode 200. It took you that long to get to me. Shame on you. No, no, you I'm, I, I'm very busy. I will show you the archives. Rodney Dobson was always... <laughs> Stop the list. <laughs> on my wish list... No, wish list, you know. So, yeah. Um, because you, ha- you have an incredible story. It's kind of I, do, I do have an odd story, yeah. No, no, it's incredible. It's not odd. And I just thought right. we, we, need to, uh, we need to capture that. I think everybody has incredible stories, don't they? Well, I think that's why I started it also. Yeah. You know, um, having worked in a theatre like that, like yeah. yourself, you, mm-hmm. you work with um, many wonderful uh, creatives on stage and off, mm. actors... Yeah, doormen, yeah, yeah. dresses, whoever, yep. and they've got a million fabulous yeah. stories. We've all ended industry. up in this crazy industry for odd reasons or interesting reasons, let's say. We've all run away We've and joined the circus. Correct, absolutely. absolutely. And that is the same for me, for, for sure. Uh, you're um, just off off uh, theatre for a bit before mm. we get stuck into it. Um, you're um, you're playing veterans football. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what is it called? The Masters League yeah, or something? Yeah, I, pl- I play... The, we're, I'm up on the Central Coast uh, and I go and train with my local footy club to keep fit and because I love footy. And uh, I try and get into the you know the adult team, the resis or the seniors. But they have a social comp uh, over 35 and they play against the Masters. And the Masters are old footballers that still want to have a kick. And it's quite a, it's quite a big deal. They have an all-Australian team. They, they get jackets and a tie and have a dinner and the whole thing. I haven't gone that far. Right. But yeah, I still like a child, still run around chasing footballs like but, a fifteen-year-old. But but you're not fifteen anymore, no, and, and neither are a lot of those blokes. Yeah, so are, are they more prone to injury? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it hurts. They go pretty slow. I'm I uh, I've been very very lucky. Um, I'm an I'm what you call an outside runner. I'm not a in and under type, so I don't get knocked around too much. I'm more a out in the wing, running up and down with skinny legs. Uh, looking, looking, looking for easy touches and not the face, not the face. <laughs> I work in theatre. I work in theatre, <laughs> um, but I, but I love it and it's a great, it's a great distraction from 
what it is I do. It's, it's, I think it's really important for artists to have something else mm. because if, if you're all about art all the time, you go a bit mental and most people that are all about art all the time are a bit mental also yes, you know yes. whether it's golf or whether it's knitting or something like you need i think everyone needs something else to focus on you've got to broaden your circle don't you outside mm. of yeah. your workplace yeah. and effectively yeah. you know the theater is your workplace mm. um, yeah yeah has, has been accidentally yeah, yeah. that's right I keep <laughs> waiting for it to throw me out but here i am so, uh, were you a junior league player? When did you first start? No, so I was never good at football. I was my first love was athletics, um, little athletics. That's what, oh, yeah, that right. was my, my real passion. I loved to run, and yep. in, a, in a funny way, it's sort of connected to my to how why I love theatre because my first real rush of the crowd clapping was in athletics when little Rodney would come around the final bend, you know, in last place, but he'd try his little heart out, all the mums and dads would give him a real cheer. And I'm like, what's that noise? I like that. I want more of that. But I was right into that. I lived in a country town in Victoria, one thaggy, and I was the fastest kid in my group. And, and I won trophy after trophy. And I just was right in it. The youngest of three boys, so this was my way of proving myself. Then when I got to Perth, we moved to Perth when I was eight, uh, in in the suburbs, there was way more talented kids around, and uh, I didn't like it as much when I started coming second and third and fourth. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, so that that was kind of it. And then that sort of led to football as a junior. Um, but then when the boys started getting really big, it got a bit frightening. And uh, I kind of I was I was playing music by then. I played the trumpet, and um, and so I decided in my year eleven and twelve, concentrate on high school. You could you could either have football or music. So I decided the trumpet wasn't going to punch me in the face, so I'd do the trumpet. <laughs> and, uh, and so I sort of quit footy. Um, I had a funny experience with them. Um, my final game was a grand final in the under-15s, and they, the coach so wanted to win so badly that he got a couple of the under-14s that didn't make their grand final, and they, they could play up legally in a loophole. And I spent most of the day on the bench in the, in the final game even though I played all year. So I was very cross. I was very upset. That was my I'm going to the circus sort of moment. That's it. Fair enough. You mistreated me. I'm going to go where people love me. I know how you feel. I, I spent a lot of time okay. on the bench. Did you? Yes. Did you? And in junior league, I remember one specific Saturday morning, I must have been so upset. My mother went up to the coach and, and that's not a good look. Oh. That's and just said, can you give Pete? Yeah. Anyway, I had a few years off, and then um, <laughs> my brother was very talented, uh, but he was a little fella, oh, okay. um, very oh. fast. Um, and anyway, I decided to give the under 16s a go. So yeah, you I got, had a, I had you a got go. the size. You're... I do have the size, yeah. and I think that's what was my downfall also, right. because um, I'd played my first under 16 game, yeah. and um, the reserves were short. So they said, "All right, Pete, you're can playing, you go out and play?" I said, no. "You're big enough." I, I kept running away from the ball when they came towards yeah. me. It's just too rough. Yes, this is rugby league, or no? For AFL. A, this is AFL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. I grew up in Victoria, and it's probably less rough these days. The game's improved now, but in those days, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. The, Cap- uh, Captain one Blood. umpire, and they, Cap- yeah, Captain Blood. <laughs> yes, there's only one umpire, and he can't see everything, so uh-huh. you you're getting knocked from pillar to post. Dad would often say, "With my size and my brother's talent, we could have won." You could have done Brownlow. You could have done anything. <laughs> That's so good, so good. Well, lucky for the arts that we got spat out of that system. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, I last saw you on stage in hmm. Chicago. Yeah, as Amos Hart. Yes. What a great role, and yeah. you were brilliant. You were brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. Thank Chicago was, 
one of my very first loves when I discovered musical theatre and I discovered Sweeney Todd in Chicago, I was like, my mind was blown it's, you know, back in the mid-80s or late-80s when I fell, fell, fell over them through John Milson, uh, who was the head of Whopper at the time. Um, he pushed that, pushed both those shows down their throats and I loved them. And there was a, He did an amateur production in Perth and I desperately wanted to be in it, but he, John didn't rate me very much. And he talked, he talked me into going for Bye Bye Birdie at Rebold Hill or something in another amateur production uh, in our first year break. So I, I missed it. And he got out like a media student to play Mr. Cellophane, to play Amos. A media student? A media student. He was, couldn't sing. It was terrible. I watched it and I'm like... What? It's terrible. And, and then so all through my career, there's been Chicago after Chicago. I've always wanted to audition and it was always working. Um, I was doing Wicked when one production, another production came along from Frosty. And, and uh, I went to him, uh, or went to Bernadette and said, can I please audition? You know, I, you know, it's a show I love, blah, blah, blah. They said yes. And then two days passed and the phone call came. Actually, no one from Wicked can audition for it. We're not going to let anyone out. And so it, that was it. I thought, well, that's it. I'm too old now. I think I think that ship sailed. But I got to do Sweeney Todd, so you know, one out of two, pretty, pretty, pretty happy. Yeah. And then um, when the auditions came up, I think there was other shows like Billy Elliot was around, and I was like, I'll probably end up in that. That's my sort of stuff. Um, and didn't get anything. Didn't get anything. And I thought, all right. Well, my ring agent said, look, I just love doing the material. Can I go for Chicago, even though I think I'm too old now? For, for that role, for for Billy Flynn or for Amos. And uh, and they saw me and, you know, and I, they gave me a call back and I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is this might happen. And and uh, when they cast me, yeah, I was like, couldn't stop pinching myself. I still can't stop pinching myself because it's a dream gig and a dream show. So it was like a massive tick of a massive box. But obviously you're a highly skilled performer and, and so you are. And so perfect for, for roles like that. But there are production companies and, you know, Frosty can be guilty of it as well, of yeah. not putting anyone in a principal yeah. role unless yeah. they've got a profile. Yeah, Understandably, absolutely. he's a commercial absolutely. producer. Oh, tell me about it. So, yeah, so <laughs> yeah. to give you that opportunity when you're not a box office yeah. name. Yeah, I don't um, know. I don't know how I twisted Frosty's arm in the end because he very much... You know, very much guilty of just bringing in. He, Frosty will say, "Where are all the stars now? Where are they? I have to bring them in." It was like, "It's because you brought them in that there's no stars." Yeah. You know, all of us understudies, it should be you know Adam Murphy and Rodney Dobson and and so on should be playing all these leads. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, so, I, and I've had this out with producers, and they listen and they nod, and then yeah. then they go ahead and ignore me anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, so... And deep down, they probably agree, but, you know, it's their money on the line in abs- the end. Absolutely, and, yeah. absolutely. And, and and for Frosty, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. He's, you know, I think when I came in, he's in into the industry, he was like number four on the list of big producers, and now he's number one. All those others have sort of... Then I don't think there's a really useful office in Australia anymore, no. and Cam Mack and... Oh, well, Michael that, Castle's so. giving him a nudge. Castle, Castle's, yeah. Castle's now... Well, now he's... Yeah, now there's new guys coming in. Yeah. Well, the next generation. Global, global creatures and all that. Yeah. yeah. So like Frosty came in and, and yeah. took over from Ken Brodziak yeah. yeah. and... Yeah. Tom, and um, yeah. JC Williamson's yeah. and, and Frosty just does what he does. He's yeah. not. I don't. I think he would be the first to agree that he's, he's not necessarily gifted at having an eye for talent. He's got an eye, I guess, for the right show for the right time. Most of the time, he gets it right. Not always. And people, you know, a lot of people come to theatre to see his shows that might not go to theatre normally, potentially. So, um, but yeah, he he spits them out. He gets his greases and his annies, and he just churns them out and all that. People come to theatre. It's good. Keeps us in work. It's all good. 
Yes, I reckon I've seen about three productions of Annie. <laughs> you poor thing. Yeah. Um, they cover around every ten years, and, and yeah. Chicago, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah, Chicago, yeah. But they're great shows, and you know, yeah. it's always good yeah. to see what new people yeah. do to it. Yeah, absolutely. I was absolutely thrilled to do Chicago. Um, I, I, I think, like, I feel like when I was a student, of course, I wanted to play Sweeney Todd, and I wanted to play Billy Flynn, but I knew of myself, I was more of a Tobias Rag and a Mister Cellophane, because uh, I do, I do pathos and play losers better than I play <laughs> heroes. Um, but, but yeah, you know. But, but having said that, you know that that oh, here comes Chicago again, mm. or here comes yeah, Annie again. Yeah, there's a kid out there that's seeing it for the very first Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, like we, like I, if I stumbled over. It, in '87, you know, Chicago's from the '70s, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. So I knew nothing of it. So and hearing that, hearing that overture, da 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 da, what's this? It's unbelievable. And every every song a winner. I don't know if you're aware, but um, this year, 2021, mm. is the 40th anniversary of the Sydney Theatre Company production with uh, Jeremy. Oh Turner yes, and yes, which, which you can find on YouTube. A really scratchy version of it you can actually see it it's a badly filmed and yes from the fixed camera at the back, the camera view, at the yeah. back. but yeah, it's out there um uh it was interesting because jason donovan was on chicago in melbourne so he told me a few stories to like terry it was a big deal for terry who, who played, played billy, billy flynn, flynn. Yeah. uh he still got the programs the posters and so jason brought in all the stuff from terry to show us at work, it obviously meant a great deal to, to Sir Terence, as he liked to be called. Um, and um, Jason was a little boy, uh, and he was dragged into the theatre. And he said he saw it many times when he was a little kid. And he said the uh, George, George that played played Amos George Bartels Bartels yeah. used to used to know where he was in the audience and um, sort of play to him a little bit and play around with him. So um, uh, so Jay, so it was a big deal for Jason to step into that role. So. Yeah, and he's Mr. Cellophane. I think he he hooked his feet into shoes that's that were right. fixed to the floor. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that, and that swayed, leaned. swayed yeah. and leaned. Yeah, yeah. It's a cheap trick. I was way more. I was way more interesting than that. <laughs> <laughs> you were in the sexy Chicago. We were. We were actually. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I wasn't sexy in Chicago. Um, we're actually his his version of Amos was completely different to mine because I couldn't help but have a look on YouTube after it. After we started, he played him really, um, you know, sorry for himself and played him like a loser. Whereas uh, our director said, Amos, Amos is happy. He's having a baby. He's in love. He's things. Things are great for him. He's just got these. He's only. It's only when you see him in the show that he's got a problem and he's trying to deal with it and not that well equipped. But never, never play. Never play sorry for yourself. Never play for sympathy. So. I, I'd, I've auditioned with Mr. Cellophane a million times, and I always play it like someone stood up in a crowd, you know, like what a sad guy I am. And she's like, "Nah, he's smart, smile." It's like if someone stood up in a crowd and and, and raised his voice up, we out loud because he's just found out he's going to be a father. Yeah. So, yeah. so to completely, I had to undo everything I thought about that character and redo it. Yeah. That's the glorious thing, isn't it, about what we do? You know, yes. you, you get a script and a text, yeah. and then it's up to you yeah. and your director and the yeah. creatives to right. to bring that to life in whatever way you. That's right, and you never know which way it's going to go. That's right. right. Mm. So moving to Perth mm-hmm. at age eight, um, why why the move from South Gippsland? The, the, the um, family moved to Perth. Yeah, I think I think it was like one thing. was a coal mining town. Three boys. My my eldest brother was I think struggling a little bit, and I think. My mum and dad saw if we stay here, these three boys are going to end up working in this mine or working at you know a factory somewhere around here, and so we want 
bigger opportunities. And I actually asked my parents this the other day, like how how did how did this how, why Perth? Like you could have gone to Ballarat or something, like a slightly big because they didn't want Melbourne too big, too scary. But Perth in you know in the seventies was a you know a country town effectively, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know on the rise, lots of opportunities. And I think they had a, a work connection there for my dad. So so yeah, at eight, ten, and thirteen, the three boys we. We slept across the Nullarbor and started all over again in Perth. Your grandfather was a coal miner, wasn't he? Correct. Yeah, well yeah. done. Yeah, was that the family business or? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess it was going to be, wasn't it? Um, so my my grandfather, his name was Dominic. Um, he died when my dad was fifteen, so I never knew him. But he he, I think he had a previous marriage. He was from Tasmania. He came up looking for work, uh, went to the coal mining, and my dad tells told me stories about. Um, he, he, you know, he worked in a seam under the ocean where you're on your hands and knees, and he would like he would come home, and Nan, my Nan, would have to wash him from top to bottom because he's covered in black stuff. They get on a bus, they get dropped off. They work ridiculous hours and ridiculous conditions. So did he conditions. die from coal related? Presu- presumably, oh, it was no. some sort of yeah consumption or some sort of uh, heart or blood or something thing, but it can't can't be good working in working in amongst coal I can't no, imagine no. Um, and my dad said he got taken on a tour there once like his dad took him down and he said it was, it was he said it was unbearable to be in there it was like claustrophobic nightmare I went um, down the mines in Kalgoorlie at one stage you know kilometres yeah, under the yeah, earth yeah, and yeah. it's so humid and yeah, hot and yeah, suffocating it's a whole another another yeah. world yeah yeah yeah. So um yeah, so so that's the yeah, that's my roots on that side. So doing a show like Billy Elliot, were mm. you able to reference that at yeah, all? Yeah, yeah. I I never did Billy Elliot. I auditioned oh. for it both times. Um and yeah, and I, I was really keen to be part of it because I could you know, in the rehearsal room I could bring up all of this stuff and and uh and go back and look at it because it, those country towns that they did it they did it really, really hard and um yeah, so it's, it was a shame. I never got to, to scratch that itch. Oh, that's a shame. Mm. I, th- I thought you'd done it. No, yeah, no, I was. Was it the sort of, tapping? The was, tapping lift you down? Yeah, <laughs> might have been my tap dancing. <laughs> I think I was too young the first time to be the dad, and that was kind of the where I was at. And I was probably a bit old for it this recent time. And of course, they went with Justin Smith, who played the brother in the first one. So it was really clever casting, and mm. Juzzy's a great actor. Mm. So I, I had no problem with that. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, can't can't be in everything. I try, but I can't. Your mum did some amateur theatre. Yes, yeah. yes, she did. Yeah. Well done. Um, Was that in Perth or in uh, in Wanthaggy? Right, yeah, right. I, she might have done a couple of things in Wanneroo in WA. Um, yeah, she. I think she probably claims to be. She would claim that to be the music, you know, the one that's given me my musical talent. But you know, she. I think she played. She she blacked up for Bloody Mary in South Pacific at Wanthaggy. Back in the day, probably before I was born, there's a couple of photos kicking around. I think she thought she was very good. I think she still says, you like, you buy occasionally. Um, You're stingy bastard. Stingy bastard. <laughs> there was a Calamity Jane production, and I remember they used my toy hat on the calam- the girl that played Calamity Jane because I had those little hats oh. with the guns across the front. And uh, and I was just so proud that my hat was, was in, <laughs> in the, the show. <laughs> Did you get thank you in the program? Probably not. No, <laughs> no, people don't care. So I'll tell you, I've been cellophane right from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> no one notices. You just mentioned Wanneroo. I love being yeah. in Perth and yeah. discovering suburbs like Wanneroo. Oh, yeah. in I'm a, going to the movies in Aloo. In, in Aloo. Dog Swamp I drove past the other day. I, I went home and visited my parents. Uh, Dog Lake Swamp. Lake Munga. Lake Munga. Some, some rippers. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
No, yeah. no I love, I love, love <laughs> you love visiting. <laughs> so, uh, school, were you involved in the, the drama club or musicals? So I'm a, I'm a public school boy. My my sort of journey to to getting into music and then, then into the theatre was the primary school had a, one of those music aptitude tests so they uh, must have been run by the government they came in and played beeps and kids had to say whether the beep was higher than the first beep or lower and um and i could have could have cared less didn't interest me but i i you know i'd I'd obviously got the top 10 kids and so the top 10 kids got dragged off with the other classes and we all there's like 30 kids standing up near the headmaster's office and they said right you can all learn the guitar or you can learn the trumpet what do you want to do and everyone went of course, I want to, you know, I want to play for ACDC. I'm going to go and learn guitar. So 29 kids line up for guitar, and one kid goes over for the trumpet. And it, and I'm at the back of the line because I wasn't that interested. And a teacher sort of saw what was happening and just went to the back few kids and said, "Listen, if you, you know, if, if you, there's only six positions in each, so you're going to miss out. Um, you know, you should go over the trumpet line." We're like, "No, nah, not really interested in trumpet." He said, "You know, you get out of maths. You know, you don't have to. Go, you know, it's during class. You got to go and play the trumpet." Like, we just ran to the line. Where do I sign? So I can get so, sort of laziness that got me into that, uh, which is a theme in my life, I think. And um, so we signed up for trumpet, and then yeah, they gave the school gave me a, a horn for a year, and then my parents had to purchase one. And and um, Eric Cooper was my teacher, and he was my first sort of arts disciplinarian. He made me practice half an hour every day, and and I you know sort of learnt to read music uh, through osmosis while you're learning to blow this thing. And so within a few years, I could start playing songs and dazzle my friends, and I, I, I came to love it. I tried to quit. All of those six kids, they were all gone within eighteen months. I was the last one left by high school, and. Um, I tried to quit because it was just embarrassing carrying a case to school. And I went to a pretty tough school and you just get hassled. Everyone was smoking cigarettes at 12 and there's me carrying my trumpet. So I used to pull it out and blow cigarette smoke through the trumpet. <laughs> and they go, oh, you're cool, you're all right. Um, and my parents made me stay at it. And um, and, I, and they said, you'll thank me one day. And I, no, never thank you, it's uh, horrible. I used to wag school or deliberately forget the trumpet. And then one day it just clicked. I realised I was making music. And I was, you know, I was with the locals concert band, and and uh, and then that that was it. I was like, I'm a musician. This is, I love this. This is unreal. And I ultimately did thank my parents. I guess you thanked them on opening night of Jolson. Of jo- of Jolson. Did you, you know, play the played a little bit of trumpet? Yeah, I've played trumpet in a few shows. Return to the Forbidden Planet. I played a lot of horn. Definitely played trumpet on Jolson when. Famously, the band, you know, the band would come through the, from the roof in the finale. It would come down from the roof, and it was basically three fly cues. Different levels of the band would come down. We were in the middle level, and one day a slider hadn't been pulled back, and our our middle our middle level hit the slider and f- tilted to an angle. The whole band started sliding <laughs> off. People were screaming and crying. I was the only one on the thing that kept playing terribly. <laughs> <laughs> this fanfare um, and several several actors refused to get on that thing ever again <laughs> I, I didn't care um, but yeah so trumpet's been handy at a few at a few um, on a few shows you sort of got to have to survive in this industry you've got to have several skills you know you several need, tricks yeah you need little tricks you know juggling or a unicycle or a, play an instrument or have crazy hair or you know be stupidly tall or whatever it is yeah it's the only way to last because if you're just a one-trick pony, there's not enough shows to to fit you. So, what do you owe your longevity to? Um, <sighs> what are your tricks? Yeah. What, what makes oh, you, what separates yeah. you? Well, so I think crowd? I think the secret. 
grip for me has been versatility. Uh, so in my in my early years, I was I was great for producers as an understudy because I was young enough and sort of capable enough to fit into the ensemble, but I could play Emile de Beck if I had to, which John Frost did do do to me when I was twenty five. I played Emile de Beck opposite um, Paige O'Hara. Yes, well done. Um, uh, and she would have been, I don't know what her age is, but she would have been older than me at the time. And so her <laughs> Nelly to my Emil was quite funny. It was a great production. The thing I take away good. from that, though, was all that denim and baby oil. <laughs> There's a lot of... By the same when, I, when I auditioned for it, because I joined the company halfway through, they uh, we we got down to the last five or six, and we, we were lining up, doing a 101 pounds of fun tap dance routine. And just, right, we're going to do one more guy's time, chaps, I hate to have to do this, but can you all take your shirts off? <laughs> and so the five of us took, took our shirts off and they were all ripped guns. I remember Peter Bodner was there. He was a muscle Mary and that just amazing. And my pudding just spilt out over my pants. Oh, no way I'm getting this gig. And of course, when you do the tap dancing, everything just jiggles. <laughs> and uh, I, oh, there's no way I was going to get the ensemble of this gig, but I didn't know they were looking for an Emile Debeck cover. And so they, they actually followed me out of the room. David Lynch was the resident director. Followed me, not the David Lynch, but David Lynch. Um, followed me out of the room and said, you know, we, we really want you to come and do this. There's not much money and you can't tell anyone what we're paying you and it was it was for pittance um and so that was that so i joined that company and yeah uh started doing push-ups and sit-ups and, and watching what i was eating <laughs> but at the ensemble you didn't have to take your shirt off did you you, uh, you yeah we or... it was actually quite funny so peter bodner got the gig he came in as a swing which they needed and i came in to replace tim rogers who'd left um and he was he was a really well built, handsome young man, and so there was one part where he he and another ensemble member played Killer Ken and Terra Tom, where they came out and did a they had a muscle act or something in the middle of the concert that they do, um, and then you know the, the the stage would revolve around while they were doing their act, and there would be an intimate scene with Cable and Emil on the other side of the aeroplane, um, so they had to be muscly, and so the, <laughs> David Lynch just said, listen. There's a bunch of supers in the show that just extras we pick up in each city. He said, listen, we're going to get you to just go over there with the supers and you stand with them and we'll get Peter to come on and do this Muscle Mary bit. And uh, and he looked a million bucks. And I was sort of mortified. I was like, everyone around me looked great. And I was sort of embarrassed. I'm over there with the supernumeraries. And uh, so I said to him, I said, look, if I, if I work out and I get a tan, and I, can, I, can I, you know, can I get that part back? It wasn't even a very interesting part. He said, sure, you know, you know, we'll try by Melbourne, you know, we'll see how we go. And so I did. I did a million push-ups and a million sit-ups. And I, tan, I put the fake tan on, did all that. And he said, all right, you, you can have it back. And then that minute I, st- I started eating again and stopped working out and everything turned to jelly again. <laughs> but, yeah, it was a lot of fun. A lot of great. It's a very blokey show. Mm, I think, mm. you know, I think when Rogers and Hammerstein did that, they... They were groundbreaking. We don't want chorus boys. We want men. Yeah. We want rough, tough, hard men. I mean, it's funny over the years now. You you think of the chorus from South Pacific not being that, but that's what it was originally. Yeah. So we had a lot of fun. There's a lot of good boys on that show. We had a good time. Oh, it's powerful when mm. uh, when yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the chorus takes yeah. off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yes, he Mary is a girl. I love bum, 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 bum. It was so much fun. The um the things we do for art um, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in training our our bodies. Um, so let me ask you about the full Monty. Yes. 
um, yeah. in which you played the, da- fa- the Dave, fat Dave, the fat guy Dave. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so you, it's another sure. skill I have. Yeah. I can put on weight. <laughs> you had to put on weight for that one. Yeah. I remember at the auditions, because I've got quite the double chin, even when I'm skinny, and David Atkins said, said uh, can you, do you reckon you can put on seven or eight kilos? I said, oh, look, I, with the right costume, I can, look quite, I can look quite fat. And they said, there's no costumes in this, Rodney. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's the full Monty. <laughs> so um, I, I, I don't know why there wasn't a larger actor that could have done that role, but um, they liked me enough and said, can you put on the weight? I said, sure. And I think just thinking about it, I put on two kilos. Um, but the horrible thing is you, you then have to take it off at the end of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And it was harder than putting it on. Yeah. Fort Monty was a great show. It was one of the, one of the yeah. proudest things. What a crime it didn't get past massive, Melbourne. Fl- massive flop. So did nobody go? Or what was nobody it? came. Right. People that came loved it. We had rave reviews. Um, it was a, there was a few issues with it. It was originally booked at the Madge. And then the Arts Centre, this is my version of what happened. I hope it's the truth. The Arts Centre sort of said, hey, come to our theatre, we'll give you free ushers, we'll, pay, we'll put the bar, we'll do all this, and made a better offer. They said, great, we'll, we'll shift it. Sorry, Mike Walsh, we're not going to go to the match anymore. And Mike Walsh was pretty upset and went to the newspapers and it had a bit of negative press. And Mike Walsh, if you know of Victorians, they're very proud of, proud of their people. It's like, no one offends Mike Walsh, so we're not going. There's a little bit of that. It was summer summer in Melbourne at the Arts Centre. You know, there's jazz festivals and tennis on and all this sort of thing. So it's just hard to attract a crowd. Plus, the show was set in America. The movie's set in Newcastle in England. So once people got wind of the work, an American version of Full Monty, not interested. You know, make it Australian, maybe, or leave it where it is. But it was written, It was the musical was written by Americans, so they set it in Buffalo in New York. Um, but the show itself was was fantastic and it was the first time and maybe the only time I've done a musical where the issues brought up in the show are issues that I deal with. You know, there's an unemployed guy trying to get his kid back. There's a guy who's worried about the size of his penis. There's a guy who's overweight and, and so on, a, you know, a skinny, nervous guy and all that. It's like these are real men's issues. I mean, you, know, norm, you know, it's the Paris Opera House or it's a spaceship or it's, you know, it's a, a French Revolution is always your backdrop. This was just five men um, or six men that, were, that had, you know, were trying to overcome some personal issues. And yeah. it, was so, it was so beautiful to work on it and it was funny and it was raw and it was real and, and, and getting your kid off is one of the funnest things you can ever, ever do. So you got the full kid off? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you kind of, if it's in the title, you kind of have <laughs> so, to. So uh, what protects your modesty? Is it the, the, the lighting? They, uh, yes. So behind us at the very end would be this big full Monty sign with, with a million globes over it. Right. And it would blind the audience at the moment of the G-string coming off. Um, so it was actually so fun for us because everything else would go black. So the audience would light up. We would see them looking at us in the nude with their hilarious reactions on their faces. Like, ah! <laughs> Most of them are looking at the black guy anyway. So I wasn't really worried. Like I'm the one fat man and there's five good-looking blokes next to me. Like, no one's looking at me anyway. And then we'd scurry off into the wings in our dresser and have a dressing gown and we'd bow in our dressing gowns. Um, the only thing on you was a mic taped to your body. <laughs> so, I, mean, I think I was in our hats, and, but we'd have a mic taped down our body um yeah so that was heaps of fun and we were really really proud of it um i remember going to the helpman awards that year and and um we will rock you just cleaned up 
they they kind of they were kind of responsible for the death of us. It's, sometimes there's just too many shows in town, and they were they were really advertising hard because they were coming to the end of their run, and it, it sort of killed us. So they were winning award after award after award after award, and they finally got to the best actor right at the end, and Matt Hetherington won. And I leapt out of my seat like five metres in the air. I was just so happy. And he got up and spoke about the show and they started playing the music to get him to shut up. And he said, stop, stop. We worked really hard for this. I'm going to keep talking. And he banged, <laughs> she put her stick down and he just kept talking about the show. And um, we were yeah, we were really, really proud of that. It was a really great show. I, I really want the Haze or something to do an intimate yeah. version of it because it's a beautiful story. It is a great, and, great show. And there's not many shows about men's issues around no. these, these, these days, if, if at all. So, um, yeah. So maybe I'll have to do that one day when I become a director, when I grow up. Put her on your list. I'll go on, uh, yeah, I'll go on direct uh, Full Monty. So the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, yes. how did you hear about that? Okay, this is a good story. <clears throat> uh, I, didn't know, I didn't know anything about musical theatre. So I, I was good at the trumpet and I was quite good in speech and drama in school. And when it, when it came, I wasn't very good at anything else at school. <laughs> when it came to what are you going to do now, all my mates were going, oh, I'm good at biology, so I'm going to study zoology at uni, and I'm good at this science, I'm going to do engineering, I'm good at maths or whatever. And they're all going off to what they were good at. And so I'm like, well, I'm, I'm kind of good at playing the trumpet, um, and I'm good at speech and drama, so I'll apply, I'll apply for NIDA, I'd heard of that, and I'll apply for Perth University and play the trumpet. It's kind of they, These were my two sort of brainstorm ideas so you go you go and get the brochures from wherever these brochures were I don't know where I found them and so there were, and I knew of Whopper because um, they, they had a jazz course there which I actually applied for the jazz course but jazz music is like someone vomited on a piece of paper I'm like I can't play that so that that ended before it started so I just grabbed all these brochures I'm grabbing all the acting course for, for Whopper music course whatever and it's like there's one that said music theatre on it and the, the course then was relatively young I think it was only a couple of years old. And, I, and I'm and i like, well, I'll add that to my list. don't even know what that is. Does it mean you can play the trumpet and you can act? That's cool. I'll do that. So music I, and theatre. Yeah, music and theatre. <laughs> See, I'm, I was totally stupid. So I applied. I went for, did my NIDA audition and John, John Clark cut me in the first cut and said, by all means, go and have a career and come back and say I told you so. Um, which I did. I, I did that to him one day. He, they, neither company employed me and paid me cash money to do a, uh, a play in the Festival of the Dreaming, Dreaming called Nathaniel Storm. And so I bumped into him in a corridor and I said, oh, excuse me, John. I said, just, just so you know, um, you know, you cut me back in 1985 <laughs> and you said to come and tell you that, that I, you're right. So, you know, now you're paying me. How about that? And he just went and walked off. <laughs> It was so underwhelming. I was so <laughs> underwhelmed by that final thing. But uh, so I got all these brochures. I applied, applied for NIDA, didn't get that. Whopper said you're too young, so 17. They, they, they had a policy of 20 plus, but I know they took younger actors, but I just gave up. And that's one of the secrets to staying in the industry is like, you've got to be persistent. Mm. I wasn't. I, just, I was just lucky. And so um, I thought, well, I'll go, I'll apply for this musical theatre thing, music, music theatre, an associate diploma. And so you had to come in and dance with a group I'd never done anything like that in my life I think I went and bought some tracksuit pants because it said bring some tracksuit pants and some comfortable shoes and, and I remember Tim Lawson was and me walking in the car park Glenn Hogston would have been in that group and we you know and I, they'd played Heard It Through the Grapevine I had to learn this sort of jazz ballet routine no clue what I was doing 
um, I had to ring up a mate from my school who played the piano and I said, what's a music theatre song? They want two. And he said, music theatre's like West Side Story. Oh, yeah, I've seen that on the midday movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you need, like, New York, New York. That's, that's, that's musical theatre. I'm like, okay. So I got the sheet music for Maria because after I listened to the cassette yep. of West Side Story and I'm like, Maria sounds right. And I got the sheet music for New York, New York. And I, I went through New York, New York and went, it's got a key change which gets quite high so I just cut the key change just finish it before the key change <laughs> and then I got Mar- Maria like never heard heard this song other than watching it in the movie it never really registered so I got my pen out because I'm a great musician not and I went that note's too high but in the chord it's there so I just changed notes so I just went through and just cut pasted it to make it a comfortable range because it's a serious tenor song yeah. and I was bass baritone at best in those days and so I, I, I sort of put it in. they'll never know they won't have heard this song so I put it on Dennis Follington's piano and he, he must have been beside himself <laughs> he played he, the way he played and um, and you know I got through that and uh, I sang my songs I was, I was pretty strong on the acting stuff I had to do two scenes because I prepared them for NIDA so so it was good and, and, and not many people were going for music theatre in those days it was such a young course it wasn't very well known I was a local boy. They probably had a quota, and so I got offered a space, a place. I'm like, I got nothing else to do. I'll take it. It's the only offer I got. Um, and in the first week of Whopper at O Week, there, there, um, we all got to do our stuff for each other in the privacy of a room. And day two or something, we did our scenes for each other. And all these guys from amateur theatre were all doing Gilbert and Sullivan speeches, and they were dreadful. And I got up and did my Fred Dagg speech. Everyone laughed. Had everyone, everyone eating out of my hands. And I was like, this course is going to be so easy. I'm the best thing here. <laughs> and then the next day, we all sang our songs. And David Haynes, Timmy Shoemaker, David Knox, Stephen Esmond, all killer tenors. Glenn Ogstrom, all killer tenors. Just bang, you know, uh, corner of the sky. And, you know, um, some another guy sang New York, New York, 20 times better than me with the, with the key change. And my jaw just dropped and dropped and dropped. And what have I done? I've made a terrible mistake. Oh. And at the end of that week, so every year they do this at Whopper, at the end of the first week, they make all the musical theatre kids do their audition piece for the whole school, for the entire academy campus. And uh, they took pity on me and they let me do my scene. And I'm one of, I think, three people. I asked David King the other day, I think I'm about three people in history that have been protected. We won't make you sing. You're not ready, <laughs> and I did my I did my silly scene amongst everyone doing their songs. I came out and did a, did a Fred Dagg speech, um, and so then I went about the laborious business of going, "What is musical theatre?" You know, I had to learn everything from upstage to downstage to Stanislavski to Steve. I thought Sondheim for the first six months was song time. You know, everyone's talking about song time. Okay, well, we're doing song time. Okay, great. Right, whatever that is. I was ignorant. I was a blank piece of paper that they could mould. It's a great leveller, isn't it? You might come from being a big fish in a small pond at your school or your local country town or whatever, and and you're fortunate enough to be accepted into the the intake. And then you do do those concerts, and you think, oh, fuck. That's just so... Oh, my God, there's so much talent around, and I'm not it. Yep. I was so (laughs) ignorant. I was so ignorant. In that, in those days, I remember I auditioned for the Gilbert and Sullivan Society. It was my, it was my second ever audition, and my first one was just an interview, uh, for a theatre company called Patch Theatre Company, and they gave me a gig. So I thought, oh, that's how it works. You go in, they meet you, you tell them that you're good, and they give you a job. So I see this ad for Gilbert and Sullivan Society are doing a production of the Gondoliers, 
at the match. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what that is, but I'll, you know, I'll audition for that. I'm an actor. Um, <laughs> and um, so they, I rang up the lady to make my appointment. And she said, I said, oh, have you got a copy of the music? Because I don't know anything. But she said, sure, you can pick up the score from my letterbox. So I drove, I must have been 17, drove, drove to her house and got a copy of the, <laughs> the gondoliers and, and, uh, and sort of took it with me to my job interview, which was at the match. And I'm in the waiting room. And it's all everyone knows each other, right? All, it's, an, it's an amateur show, so they're all you know. You did this production here. They're all how are you, lovely? And hello, darling. And they've all got music in their hand. They've all got sheet music in their hand. I'm, I'm looking around and like just from what they're saying, I'm realizing they're going in one by one to sing on so, the stage. I guess on the yeah. stage of the match, a beautiful um, His Majesty's in um, in Perth. So all I've got is this score of gondoliers, which I've just sort of flicked through trying to read the story. And so I'm like nervous and quiet and shy. So I just open my book and start flicking through it, trying to find something that's for a man that I could sing. Thinking, I can play the trumpet. How how hard can singing be? Can't be any harder. So I find, you know, song number six, whatever the song is. I'm like, that looks that looks reasonable. I'll sing that. Um, so, we, so we go out. I stand on the, on the X in the middle of the stage, completely raw and ignorant and fearful. And they're miles back under a light. Hello, Rodney, what will you be singing? And I said, I'm going to sing number six from the gondoliers. <laughs> Piano player opens up his score and goes... And I don't know how to sing a B. Like, I can read the note. If I had my trumpet, I know that that's the second valve, but I don't know what to sing, so I just sort of stopped. And they were like, what's the problem? I said, I didn't bring a song. I thought I might be able to sing this. Turns out I can't sight read. Um... And they're like, oh, I'm grumpy. We're a shuffling of papers and said, you know, said to the piano company, said, can you just play God Save the Queen? And he went, oh, yes, certainly. So I go, God Save Our Gracious Queen. Uh, um, I don't know God Save the Queen. They didn't ask me. And they go, Rodney, if you ever audition for us again, will you please prepare some music and don't waste our time again. And I walked off the stage. They didn't uncover my amazing talent and I left. So six months later I'm at WAPA and four of the guys were in that show. And I, so I at some point get the courage to tell them the story. I said I auditioned for that and it was pretty disastrous. And they said, oh, that was you. The director told us on the first day of rehearsal we were all, all rolling about laughing at this kid who thought he could sight sing. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my very first on-stage audition ever. <laughs> Shame on them for not noticing how Absolutely. awesome I am. Absolutely. Look what they missed out on. <laughs> Look at that. Look what they missed out on. God. I, I was always under the impression that you were in the very first intake. At, at yeah, Marcus, it, feels, some... it feels like I was. The, there was, the music theatre course um, started a couple of years before me, and Dennis Follington ran it, I believe, with Jeff Gibbs. And... Um, and it was a, a very young and naive course, and it wasn't going very well. And Milson signed up to be the head of the department and come and take it over. And when he came in, I believe, he basically just cleared the ranks and he sacked everybody or repeated a few students or shoved a few off to straight acting courses. Um, and uh, and that was that. So he, my intake in 87 was like a fresh start. Uh, there was no second-year students. There was just us. And um, and that's where it began. So it feels like we were the very first pioneers, and I felt like I was a pioneer. Um, but there was a couple before us, and a couple a couple of people did graduate in eighty in eighty must have been eighty five. So it must have started in eighty three or eighty eighty four. Must have started. And there was a couple of graduates. 
that are still out there. I think Angela Johnson, who I did chess with, came out of that course. She's a Kiwi. She's back in New Zealand now. But you would probably be the old Deuteronomy of uh, <laughs> Thanks, music theatre course, wouldn't you? Thanks, mate. I'd like to think so. There's a few of us around. Because I was a baby in the course, and there's a few older guys in the course. Right. Um, my mate Tim Shoemaker, who's in Perth, he sits at the stage door of the of the Madge now and works with the WA Opera Company. He's a school teacher as well. He's he's five or six years my senior. So to me, he's he's the old yeah, the old Deuteronomy. But for for kids that I work with now, when I do a show, <laughs> most of them don't think I like. When I say you went to Opera, they look at me funny, going, "There's no way that it existed back old. then. Yes. You're too old." Um, and no, I was there. I was there. I find that with this with new generations when I say, "Oh yeah, I did Miss Saigon," and they're like, "How could you have been in Miss Saigon? You're too you're too old for it." I said, oh, "In 1994, Like, was there a production of Saigon in the nineties? I thought it was just the David Harris one, you know, in the noughties or whatever. They don't they don't go back that far. Well, don't don't you find that's a frustrating thing about the, the, this generation? We oh, we're all men now, but yeah, um, yes, they, they, they have no idea of what's gone before. We're the Muppets in the box now. <laughs> oh, look at those kids. That, that doesn't, not, and it's probably not their fault. And this is something that you're doing that's terrific. You're mm. you're now documenting a little bit of history. Mm. Anyone wants to bother to look because there's nowhere really to go. You no. can't pull no. off the the Aussie musical theatre book off the shelf yeah. in the library and go, oh, what happened in the eighties and the nineties? And you know, we know of Anthony Warlow's and the big successes, but there's hundreds, thousands of performers that have had long careers that just get just gets forgotten Absolutely. unless you kept your program. Well, you know, someone like dear Tony Gapin, who yeah. passed away recently. Absolutely. Yeah, phenomenal career yeah. for over 50 years in the ensemble of, of many productions. Absolutely. But, um, but he's not, not a household name. No, no. And, and you can't... There's no way you can go and f- read, you know, what he what he achieved or, yeah. or whatever. So that, that happens. So I try and inform them, but generally kids don't want to know anyway. So uh, if they ask me, I'll... I'll tell them about the good old days. It's an impressive uh, list of credits that you have, uh, Dobbo. Yeah. Um, but I notice what's missing is cats. <laughs> <laughs> you must be one of the only performers in Australia. <laughs> has been never hasn't done been cats. cats. I haven't even auditioned for it. Really? It's just um, whenever it's come round, I've not been available. I guess or couldn't get an audition. Perhaps that and Phantom of the Opera, are the two sort of really big musicals that have come and gone so many times that I haven't been in. Um, well, certainly in that 90s period when I was doing Sunset and Miss Saigon, all those things, it was like, I just need to do Phantom and Cats, and I've pretty much done it all. Uh, but there's plenty there's plenty that I haven't done. But, uh, yes, I think I might have dodged a bullet there with Cats, though, do you? Well, I don't know. It comes around pretty regularly, so maybe there is an, t- an old Deuteronomy uh, <laughs> <laughs> waiting. I'm the only guy left standing. Have you done, have you done Cats? No, no, no. I haven't. Mm. I, I, I think I, we talked about this off mic right. when I did Wizard of Oz. You know, yes. leotards are unforgiving. I just, I hope you've got a photo of you in a poppy, in a poppy suit somewhere. There's one, there's one there somewhere, but war. Talk about you're zipped up and you think everyone. I just can't uh, see you as a munchkin. I don't. I'm well, just, I was on my knees. I, well, I know you're on your knees. That's that's you're still a you're still an impressive unit. Yeah. It's like you must have been the biggest munchkin. And then when we got Were to Oz... Were you pulling your head in a when bit? When we got to Oz, I had heels and a great top hat, so I looked oh. about eight foot tall. Yes, so yeah. There's range. Yeah, <laughs> that's, see, that's the, the new... But if you could play a munchkin, I figure that means you can do anything. I think so, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Now, your first show out of WAPA was mm. that, that um, famous production of Chess at yes. the Theatre Royal. Yeah. Is that all right? Yes. There? Another good another good story attached to that. You've 
you've probably found this with the people you talk to. It's it's a series of series of fortunate events that gets you into the industry or gets you anywhere really. So I was really lucky with the Whopper thing um, at a time at a time where Whopper they it cost five hundred dollars to do that course upfront, and I got eight hours a day of classes. I got given Oz study by the Australian government, and I got rent assistance. It was unbelievable, and I didn't have to really do any. I didn't have to have certain grades or anything. It was just so straightforward. Five years later, when it's a Bachelor of Arts course, I never would have got in, not with the talent that I had, and not with my academic skills. Just wouldn't have got in. There's so many more talented people, but because it was a young course, not many people knew about it. I jagged it. So I get to the end of Whopper, and I go to Sydney. I decide to live in Sydney. I just pluck it out of a hat. Some guy's going to go to Melbourne. Some are going to Sydney. So I got my return ticket to, from Perth. It's all I've got. I've got no money in my wallet. We do our graduation tour. And I remember Milson and Follington getting in a cab after our final uh, pre- pre- presentation in Sydney for agents, which four agents came because no one had heard of music theatre. And they just drove off. And I remember looking at the cab going off going, what do I do now? I have no idea. Look, we didn't... We had, I wasn't listening when they said what to do after you graduate. I was just having a good time, singing and dancing. And so um, I went. I went to a phone box and opened up a phone book and started looking up. Looked up agents in the yellow pages and started ringing around. And um, uh, I saw Kevin Palmer. Saw agreed to see me in his office. He'd seen the acting students, but he hadn't seen us. So he agreed to see me, and I went in and met him. And he said, "So he's like." asking me questions about who I am, what I do, and he's, he's a bit gruff with me, and he's like, so if you could choose a job, what would, what would you, where do you see yourself? And I said, I guess a big musical is probably what I'd choose. Chances of that are pretty slim, I thought. And he goes, and he goes, oh, that reminds me, and he opens a drawer and pulls out a bit of his paper, and he goes, are you a baritone? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, chess are looking for a baritone. Someone's pulled out. It was John L. Simpson who pulled out. It starts in two weeks' time. Um, do you want an audition for that? I said, I said, yeah. He picks up his phone, gets an answering machine. He says, I've got a young actor who's just graduated, blah, blah, blah. Gives a call back. Uh, we finish our interview and he says, all right, I'll, I'll have a think about it and we'll, see, we'll have a think about representation. And off I went. So I rang him up the next day and got his secretary and said, has he decided on representation? No, he hasn't decided yet. Has, has he got the audition for chess? No, no, nothing's coming. Right rang a second day, rang a third day, and eventually they're getting annoyed with me. And I was like, no, there's no representation and no no auditions. So meanwhile, in my my life, I, I found a, an, an actor that I'd lived with as a student, had an agent. I met her, Lee Leslie, who's still my agent today. She agreed to take me on after looking at a tape of some acting that I did. She did she's not a musical theatre agent. Um, and she took me on. So I signed with her, and then... Um, and then I get a phone call. He must, and this is before mobiles, long before. So it must have happened to be whatever my accommodation was. I think it was staying on someone's couch. Or I happened to be home. The phone rang. I said, "Oh, you, this is Kevin. This is Kevin Palmer. Do you still want that audition uh, for chess?" I'm like, "Yeah." It's like, well, it's eleven o'clock tomorrow. Okay, okay. take a song in, whatever. Boom, hangs up. So all right. So I, t- so I had my song from my audition program, and I went in. And so they're setting up at night at the night a rehearsal studio for the production. Rehearsal. So everyone's there. Jim Sharman, three three assistant directors. Dennis Watkins was there. Um, you had Michael Tyak, the MD. You had all the producers sitting there. Um, I found out. I found out later on the reason they weren't answering the phone the first time is because the co-producer had died just that week, and they were in South Australia burying him. So I know an answer. So they're all a bit depressed. I don't think ticket sales were going well. They probably recognised that at this stage. 
And so, so the room was really tense and terrifying. It's 12 people sitting in this room. And I, I've never, you know, I'm in Sydney, I don't know anything. I'm, I'm walking around night and thinking... Having auditions as the gondoliers, I suppose. <laughs> it's, it's, it's as terrifying as gondoliers. <laughs> Except there were stories about NIDA, you know, you, you came at, you, you sort of were scared that you were going to get raped in the toilets or something, you know, or, or whatever. You know, I was just terrified of everything. I was so naive. And uh, i never forget, um, Jim Sharman's trying to direct me some understudy stuff for Walter de Corsi. And he goes, he goes, go out of the room, come in, you walk over to the thing, sing, sing your bit there to Molokov, right? And I said, I said um, so do you want me to actually go out of the room or do you want me to mime coming into the room? And he got out of his chair and he stormed across to the door and he went, he went out of the room and he slammed it shut and then he opened it again. He said, you walk in the room... You walk over to the X, you stand here and you sing the thing. Oh, I'm shaking. I'm one little bit of vomits in my mouth, I think. And he goes back and he sits in his chair. So I walked over to the rehearsal room door and I walked out and I shut the door. And I looked down the corridor and I thought, I can just go. I can just run now and go. I don't want to go back into this room. And I just took all that, all of, all my courage to turn that handle and walk back in and walk over to the X and do that bit. Um, they they didn't give me the understudy. I didn't get it, <laughs> probably because I was crying <laughs> during the during the audition. But Ruth Yateman, the the surviving producer, followed me out of the room and said, "You know, can you start in two weeks? And you'll be on equity minimum, and everyone's getting the same. So don't um, so don't ask for anything more." Um, and um, and I was like, I walked out of the going. I think I just got offered the job, and so Lee Lee would have got the contact by then and, and phoned me up. So I just fell into this job, um, and two weeks later, I had no money. If I had got into a show that started in four months' time, I would have had to go back to Perth and live with my mum and dad, and I had a job. So so in, in February nine, or January, it was January 1990, I started rehearsals on chess knowing very little, only what I'd learned at Whopper and meeting all these new people and, and everything everything took off from there. And here we are 30 plus years later. Yeah. Were I right in assuming that you've you've been very rarely out of work? You seem to have gone from show to show. Yeah, I've, I've, had, I've had a few periods of unemployment, um, uh, but I, it does appear that way and I, I understand that and that's what people... People, I have that reputation, but it's not not entirely true. But I have been very lucky because I suppose the shows that you've you've done, mm. you've you've stuck with till the end. Yeah, that, so I've you've only, had two and three. What's your longest run? Um, I did Wicked right throughout Australia, three years. Yeah, um, I'd done Les Mis twice. They both went about eighteen months, but they were two different productions, so that doesn't really count. So Wicked is easily the longest. I didn't stay to the end of Miss Saigon because I, I overlapped into Sunset Boulevard because our contracts came up, and I remember Chris Green saying to me in a pro in a meeting where he was you know trying to find out who wanted to stay and who wanted to leave. He said, "I said I've, I've been offered really I've been offered um, Sunset Boulevard, really useful company." He said, "Oh, we don't have the mega bucks of the really useful company." <laughs> I'm like, this is Miss Saigon, the most expensive musical ever produced in Australia. And he's crying poor to me. So I went, well, I'll go with them then. So off I went and did Sunset Boulevard. Um, but, yeah, that, I think I could have stayed with Wicked because it went to Asia, but um, I, I don't even think they even offered it to me in the end because I think they just presumed you've had enough of wearing that rubber goat mask. And, yeah, Dr. Dillerman. Dr. Dillerman, yes. Was, 17 minutes it, on stage. Is it difficult with the, with the mask? Uh, it wasn't too bad. It, it covered the nose 
and the and the forehead and around the ears, so you were deaf. It looked like a But you, you actually had you actually had your mouth exposed, so yeah. it wasn't too bad. It got pretty sweaty; it would suck all the sweat out of your head. But it's only in it for for a bit. Is on and off. Does that affect your skin or? or anything? I don't think it did. No. I don't think it did. You just come off really wet when you right. took it off. It's it pretty it's pretty uncomfortable. You did the ensemble as well? So it was in the very first scene. Good news, she's dead. They put a wig on me and hid me with all the kids in that. And then and then that was it. Then it was just Dillerman because you put a bit of makeup on and I'd go and have a snooze because he, he, he did two scenes in Act 1 and one little scene in Act 2. That was it. And were you covering The Wizard at that time? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I was in for Rob Guest when he passed away. Right. Okay. So that was, that was one of the most ex- extraordinary live experiences I've ever had. Um, on a show because everyone loved Rob as you would well know and and Kelly Dickerson was conducting the show there was his, his she was his partner um, so we're all devastated for her um, I'll, t- I'll tell you the, the story basically it was a we had two days off for the weekend a Monday and Tuesday off and I, I, I think I got the call on the Tuesday saying you're on tomorrow um, and also Kelly's not coming in and I'm like I was like, that's odd that they would both be off. Must be a family situation, or maybe they had a fight or something, whatever. Didn't want to question it too much because I'd never done the role before. So uh, I went in and went in and did that Wednesday matinee. And there was starting to be a few little whispers around in the corridors that I could sense something had happened to Rob. And I was like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I'll find out after the show. Um, and, you know, did the show and got through it. John Frost, to his credit, doesn't always say great things, but he came, he came on stage and just told us straight out, said, Rob's had a massive stroke and there's, and there's no chance of him surviving. Oh. Go and have your break, come back, we'll do it again tonight. And so, as you can understand, everyone goes into shock. Um, we come back and do that show that night and the sh- the Wicked is all about meeting the wizard, right? It's all about the wizard, the build-up to the wizard. It's massive. And I'm in Rob's costume. Um, so the ghost of Rob is right there in your peripheral vision is the jacket and the hat and the guy so I got a real sense that I'm upsetting people so I, I laid really low and stayed in the shadows and stayed in the dark and you know I'm still a bit nervous because I only did the show that afternoon and got through it and the second show is always the hardest one um, when I came out from behind the wizard head after I am Oz I came out there's there's Amanda Harrison and Lucy Jurek standing there you know doing the shaking in the corner bawling their eyes out they're both they're both wet with tears it puts shivers up my spine still thinking about it and I'm like girls you got to keep your shit together because I, I only I just sort of know my lines <laughs> I can't help you through your stuff and we we sort of got through that little bit of the scene until Madame Morrible comes on and I can see her I can see Maggie Kirkpatrick in the wings she's the strongest toughest coldest woman you've ever worked with sobbing in the wings she's sobbing in the wings and she can barely come on. I think she physically had to be pushed onto the stage. So I've now got three women that are all crying. <laughs> well, I'm going, I'm being the, oh, Elphaba. Big jolly, happy guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, we got through that. We somehow got through that show. Um, um, you know, I take, I take my bow that night. The, the audience weren't in on it, but the cast were. The entire cast were all crying when I come out and take my bow. I do a little kiss to the sky, like whatever. Like, how do you cope with that? And then, then we all we all, we all had to come back again on Thursday. Now it's hit the media. Now it's like Rob Guest has died. There's press at stage door. There's everyone's starting to really feel the emotion of it now because it kicks in. Um, Frosty went on before that audience and dedicated the show to Rob Guest, and so they're now in on it. 
their the audience is fully supportive and cheery. Again, it's a really difficult show. But when I came down and took my bow that night, you know, you come down the middle through all the cast on stage, all the cast are weeping, the entire audience all stood as one um, to give Rob Guest a standing ovation, effectively. That, I wasn't that good. <laughs> um, and all the, all the emotion of everyone in that theatre was all pinned on me. I've never experienced anything close to it. Um, that that feeling of all that energy in that room being put on me because of the loss of this great man. Um, and I just had to wear it. And I went on to wear it for the next sort of six weeks. I had to be, sort of carry that, be strong, be stoic and hold that while everyone else was dealing with their grief. And, you know, it was, it was so difficult you know, to, to take Kelly into that dressing room and go through his drawers and help her pack stuff up and, and to deal with Anthony Clear, who shared a dressing room with him, who was, you know, feeling it as well because they were well, dressing room buddies and, and, all, and all, all so many difficult things. And this, this whole thing of the show must go on seems so ridiculous. It's like, can we just take a couple of shows off while we go and deal with this? But no, no, Rob would have wanted us to, to go. And I, think, well, I don't think Rob would have cared. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was such a loved man. We did a, we did a wake concert for him and sang and we filled the theatre again. And just it was, a, it was a, a real pleasure to be able to be the vehicle for, for people to mourn. With. What an extraordinary position yeah. for you to, to be in. Yeah, yeah. And also, when, you, when you're in those costumes, you know, yeah. there might be different actors, but yeah. there's a particular look. So, you yeah. know, every yeah. night, yeah. Rob Absolutely. was living for those Absolutely. And way. so when yeah. Kelly came back and she's looking up and conducting, she's, you know, she's looking at her late partner. It's yeah. horrible. I remember one time we were rehearsing, or maybe we were doing a concert or something, rehearsing for a concert, and the, they, they rehearsed the monkeys flying with weights, uh, flying through the air and um, they play the music they play a copy of the archive and so they're playing Rob Guest's voice on the archive coming through the tannoys in the theatre and we can hear it and Kelly's she can hear it and she takes sort of deep breath takes deep breath and eventually just started crying and had to leave the room and we, we were like we we're like we're going to go and stop that they mustn't do that this is terrible and she said no 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 they must keep playing that they must I just need a moment to gather myself yeah um, so traumatic, so difficult. So you'd been through yeah. a similar experience in the same theatre mm. on Sunset Boulevard mm. with Brian Stacey. Yeah, yeah, your conductor. First preview, I think he rode his motorcycle home and got hit and run. Um, we went out. We went out to Michael Bogiev, who was the American Associate Musical Director's hotel room, and we watched. He showed us some Glenn Close videos or something. We had a bit of a night, and um, he. He went down. I remember Sal Sharar walked him out, and the story goes that he hopped on his bike, um, and his black jacket, black pants, black bike, big black bike. Loved his motorbike. Extraordinary man. He drink. He drank a cup of tea out of old old china, and then rode a motorbike with his helmet. And um, he turned to Sal and he said, "He said I really got to get a smaller bike. This is too big to be driving through through these tiny streets on." And he he drove off and got hit, got run over. And, uh, and died. So we came into work that day, the next morning, being told told your musical director and your conductor is dead. Um, but show must go on. Let's let's push on. Doctor Theatre. Doctor Theatre. <laughs> and that was, there was a lot of people very close to him. He was a very well, very widely loved man. And um, of course, you got all the musicians um, uh, as well as all the cast. And uh, that was yeah. That was a very challenging time. The funny, funny story was Paul Bogiev, uh was 
the, the American. So he jumped into the chair that night. He conducted the show that night. And he doesn't normally conduct it. He's a vocal coach. And he's a very animated American man. And so he put on his, his um, tuxedo. And he went down and he very dramatically conducted, arms waving. He starts sweating. He's like, he's just puts everything into it. I don't think he was doing anything accurate. The musos were good enough to just play the show. He was, because there's a lot of emotion. And um, his jacket comes off at some point, and then the bow tie comes off, and the shirt's undone. And we were watching him in his monitor. And then his trousers came off, and he's in his boxer shorts, and just the shirt, and he's conducting the show like that. And he did the whole show with just his boxers and his shirt. And then during Norma's. Norma's breakdown on the stairs. Hey, don't worry, I'm frightened. He just puts his pants on, does up his shirt, <laughs> puts his bow tie on, puts his jacket on, and ta-da, they finish the show. He turns around and takes his bow. It was extraordinary. Do uh, he do that just to sort of lift spirits? I think he's just an American. I think he's an eccentric American right. man who who was you know he was right into the words. You know he was one of those kind of do it again. No, no more, more. Uh, he was one of those guys. So it's just, I think it's, and I think he was feeling the emotion, and so it doubled, it amplified. <laughs> it, that was my memory from from that first performance. But um, I, I was very proud that the the day or two before that, um, they auditioned for second covers within the company, and and I'd auditioned for the Jocular second cover. I was covering um, I was covering Sheldrake and uh, in a smaller role that um, that was in it, and. Um, and they, yeah, they wanted second cover juguluses, so a bunch of us auditioned for it, and they gave it to me because they said, Brian, Brian you were Brian's first choice. You weren't our first choice, but you were Brian, so out of respect for the, the recently deceased, they gave me the jugulus cover, so I got to learn that role. Did you go on? Hugh, I never did go on. Hugh never went off. Um, he did go off a little bit right at the end. Tim Beveridge covered him, and Tim... Tim Debburn didn't like Tim very much, so she wanted me to go in. I'll never forget her calling me into her dressing room. She's sitting in like a dentist's chair. She had to do have her makeup done, and she had a personal personal assistant here and a company manager there. It's like she had an entourage with her, and she was topless. And she goes, "Rodney, can you come into my dressing room?" Yes, Deb. I'm like looking anywhere but at her, and she's like, "Can can you play? Can you play the role? Can you play the role? I want you to play the role. Do you know the lines?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I know the lines." Okay, all right. Well, brush up because I'm going to put you on tomorrow, whatever. Uh, And then, but I never went on. Apparently, the the MD who had taken over, which is Guy Noble, had said he the kid hasn't done a tech for it's been three months or something. It's too too dangerous. There's a lot of moving parts in Sunset Boulevard, so Guy Noble put the the hex on it, so I never got to do it. But I did a full, I did do a full tech run. Uh, it was great. It was, it was a it was a good role to play. It was I'm not really a Joe Gillis, so it was it was fun to do. Even though some people thought said it should be a character. He's a dark character, but yeah. the way Hugh did it, you just never loved him. He was a good looking, handsome, lovable guy. <laughs> Well, have you got a Max in you? Because uh, you know, Max, I, yeah, I, yeah, I believe yeah. that uh, Tina Arena is giving her Norman next year. Is that right? You haven't heard that? Well, no, I love she it. announced it at a concert. Recently. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Norma, that's a good choice. A very good choice. She, yes, she should yeah. sing, sing the shit out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'll have to get out of Moulin Rouge. Yes. <laughs> well, speaking of which, you're about to go on the road again with with Moulin Rouge going to rehearsal in uh, a couple of weeks yeah. and. Um, how exciting is so that? So excited and terrified because I'm an insecure beast. But, um, you know, after the pandemic, 12 months since Chicago of not working and, and not doing anything, it's just, it's just like 
do I have to leave the industry? Do I need to find another job? It's terrifying. And um, to, to have bagged Moulin Rouge, I, I feel very lucky because it's a young dancing show, you know, pop songs. It's not really my kind of thing, but they need... They, I was auditioning for Zidler and... Um, and uh, yeah, I didn't get it, but they offered me the understudy, so I was like, "Yes, please!" Brand new show, you know, Australian produced, all Australian cast. I'm pretty excited um, to be part of that. I, I love doing Australian premieres, and I haven't done one for a little while. I've done done um, sort You've of done re- quite a few, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I've done the original Australian. Yeah, cast. back in the day, I did a lot, and I, used to, I, I count them up. If you read my CV, I'll always list my Australian premieres first, and then I re- list the rest. <laughs> as not not being as interesting, I, I guess. So I'm really really glad to do um, another new show. I'm really glad that this is, Global Creatures have produced a Broadway show, and I, I'm really excited about that. And to work for them, I haven't worked for Global Creatures, so I'm excited about that. Um, it'd be daunting uh, learning Zidler and and somehow fitting in this ensemble of young sexy people. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do that. <laughs> Because you probably gathered by listening to this, I'm not particularly sexy, um, but uh, yeah, can't wait. But also ter- terrified. After 12 months, I'm like, can I still do it? I have, yeah. what, what happens in rehearsal rooms? I can't remember how how we do it. I hope they tell me where to stand because I've got no ideas. <laughs> um, so I'm a little I'm a little bit like that. It's the kind of performer I am. I'll, I'll give it 100. percent But, I, but I, that's I, quite I, common. And that's a, the, yeah. Audiences, the general public don't no, fully realise how anxious, anxious <laughs> it can be. Why would someone put themselves in that? position all the time I don't know and I like I said I I feel like I stumbled into this industry and people stumble out of it all the time because work dries up and it just hasn't happened for me and here is 30 years later it's like oh I now have no skills in any other area and I can't do anything else so now I'm like more desperate than ever that I to get a job because I don't quite know what else to do um, so it's ter- it is terrifying, and it's a stupid way to live. But if you're out there and you're thinking about having a career in musical theatre, don't do it. It's horrible. It's horrible. We do have a lot of fun, though. Absolutely. Yeah, the yeah. rewards are great. Yeah. yeah. So you're playing The Madge, Her Majesty's in Melbourne. In uh, August, you open? No, we're at the Regent Theatre. Oh, I beg your pardon. Yeah. I thought it was The Madge. The Regent. So you're back at The Regent. Back at The Regent, which is yeah, a lot of memories for me, because yeah. the Sunset Boulevard, and I, I did Wicked there. It's very small backstage, because it was a cinema once upon a yeah. time. So it's... It's not my favourite theatre to work at backstage. It's a massive, massive auditorium, beautiful, beautiful foyer um, and a beautiful part of Melbourne. So I'm excited about that theatre to some degree but also a bit scared of us all being squished in with sweaty pants being flung around a dressing room and all that from the dancers. Like, it's not going to be great fun but we'll, we'll make it work. <laughs> I'll go and hang out with a flyman <laughs> upstairs. Kick a footy. <laughs> Kick a footy around the fly floor. <laughs> Dobbo, Do- thank you so much. This has been a delightful hour and a bit uh, yeah. reminiscing and uh, talking about your magnificent career. Yeah. Um, the musical theatre industry would be the less without your oh. presence over the last three decades plus. Thank you. Thank so, you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, All the best for Moulin Rouge. Hey, thank you. See you there. Moulin Rouge plays at the Regent Theatre in Melbourne. It is going to be the next big thing in theatre that everyone will want to see. It features a stellar cast that includes Alita Chidsey, Simon Burke and my guest today, Rodney Dobbo Dobson. Took us to Dobbo and the entire company of Moulin Rouge for a triumphant season in Melbourne and then further afield. You've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. 
I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.